Thanks for joining us tonight for this event on Has the UK's Electoral System Had Its Day? Um, I want to upfront thank the Electoral Reform Society for supporting this event. This is part of a series of events that the Institute's doing as part of the general election. Um, so if you could use the hashtag IFGElection2019 to tweet out any thoughts you have about the event tonight, um, that would be great. I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Director of Research at the Institute. I'll be chairing the event tonight. Uh, we're going to start with a discussion amongst the panel, probably talk about three or four questions for half an hour, and then there'll be about half an hour for the audience to ask questions, so you will get your say too, and then we're going to aim to finish at 7pm sharp, at which time join us for drinks on the landing for, for the hour or so afterwards. Now we're really lucky to have an absolutely amazing panel with us tonight. Um, starting from my right, we've got Anthony Green, who's an electoral analyst for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. He's an expert on electoral systems, modelling and data, and he's worked on every federal, state and territory election since his first election with ABC in 1989. Very impressive. Um, then we've got Darren Hughes, who's the chief executive of the Electoral Reform Society. He was an MP and a minister in New Zealand before arriving in the UK, having been first elected to the New Zealand Parliament at the age of 24. Um, we've got John McTurnan, who's a British political strategist and commentator. He has been an advisor to the Labour Party, um, including acting as Tony Blair's Director of Political Operations between 2005 and 2007. And then last, but definitely not least, we've got Mandy Reid, who is the leader of the Women's Equality Party. And she's also worked as a civil servant in central government and the Greater London Authority. So, a great bunch of people. Um, so, to start, two of the last three elections have delivered hung parliaments. There's been lots of talk of tactical voting in this election. And as the Electoral Reform Society told us just a few days ago, nearly 200 seats haven't changed hands since World War II. But polls suggest we might be heading for another majority government this time, and critics of voting reform would argue that first-past-the-post is simple, it maintains the link between MPs and constituents, and it avoids too much behind-the-scenes horse trading. I want to start by asking our panel, is it time for voting reform in the UK now? If yes, What's the case for reform and what should that reform be? And if no, what's the case for keeping the status quo? Darren, I think I'm going to come to you first. So I'm a surprising yes, it is time for change <laughs> uh, on, on the topic. I think there's, there's several reasons. Well, one is that this is not a system that gives you an election everywhere. So we're about to have our fifth general election in 15 years. And it's not an election that takes place everywhere. Just two years ago at the last... Uh, election, uh, only 70 seats changed hands. So the election just takes place in small pockets of the country. And even where it takes place, most of the votes that get cast don't contribute to the outcome. So they get faithfully counted and reported, and they're legal and they're in order, but they don't contribute to the political outcome because the winner either didn't require that many votes, and so they, they have the wonderful effect of being ego-satisfying but not politically changing. Uh, or they were votes for a winner, and we have a winner-takes-all system where we think one single person can represent a geographical area. So I think for those reasons we should, we should have a change, and we should move to a proportional system that has a constituency link, and uh, all the PR systems that are in use in the UK right now do have strong constituency links, but they also maintain proportionality. So that this is not some sort of miracle case, it's something that can work. And then finally I'd say that what we should, the reason we should do it is to change the mechanics 
so that seats match votes. I think that's a very important thing to keep faith with the way people vote. But it's not the only reason to do it. And if it's all we do, we won't really change or improve much. We've released a poll today that shows 80% of people don't think politics in Britain is working. So in addition to the mechanics of the electoral system, we need to change the culture of politics. And I think one of the ways to do that is by having a voting system that more healthily, transparently, and honestly reflects our political differences by translating our votes uh, into seats in the House of Commons. Brilliant. Thanks, Darren. Just one quick follow-up. Um, I imagine that some people might argue that one of the reasons we found, for instance, Brexit so difficult to reach a resolution on is the kind of parliamentary gridlock that we've seen in the last months and, and year. So wouldn't a shift to the kind of system you're talking about potentially make that a common feature of political life? Uh, I, I think it would make it a, an easier feature because you'd know long in advance where the differences lay. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the moment, we're asked to go and vote either Conservative or Labour if you believe in the two-party model of first-past-the-post. But you don't really know what coalition that exists within that party is going to be in charge. You're totally blind or uh, powerless over which, which faction of the party will be dominant. And so I think that's been part of the problem with the Brexit impasse, has been trying to put together too many things that just fundamentally don't fit. Parties either flying apart because they can't uh, resolve their differences and they've tried to pretend they're a big tent for everybody. Uh, or, or the second problem um, uh, has, has been that uh, parties have a bulk of their voters supporting one style uh, of, of Brexit or Remain, and yet the number of seats... You want me to speak up or the other speaker to speak up? <laughs> sure thing, I'll try and... Okay, no trouble. So the final point I was going to make, uh, in addition to the great ones I've already said, sir, um, but the final point I was going to make is that first past the post has given a genuine problem for, say, Labour, where two-thirds of Labour voters supported Remain, but two-thirds of the constituencies that gave manifestation to Labour's support in the Parliament voted to leave. And that, that conundrum, that dilemma, is partly because we have the adversarial system. If we had a system that did be more open about the differences and treat them as good and healthy things, then we could put together more sensible coalitions of support on topics and government formation as well. Thank you. Anthony, I'm going to come to you next. Uh, well, I come from a very different political culture in Australia is inherited. Um, people always talk about the convicts that were sent to Australia, but people forget the uh, Britain, Britain used to send its political prisoners. So the Chartists, the early trade unionists, the Fenians, all ended up in Australia. And from the 1850s onwards, Australia became an experimental place for electoral systems. First country in the world and choose the secret ballot, manhood suffrage, female suffrage by the end of the century. Um, that voted itself into existence with a constitutional referendum and then um, votes. So uh, the process that's now used by the UN as nation formation was invented in Australia. Now, on top of that, the experiments since Federation in Australia have been less common around the world. We are, have compulsory voting and Australia makes it work and everybody votes. And it's very easy to vote in Australia. Um, and the second thing is we have various forms of the alternative vote at STV, electing our houses. We also have the peculiarity of a very strong federal system and two house parliaments at both state and federal level. So to some extent, we're talking about proportional representation. We don't have a lot of that in Australia. We do have in our upper houses, but the sheer way that federation works in the different levels of government in conflict means that a lot of that process of argument that goes on, goes on across different levels of government. Um, so a proportional representation doesn't have a big input to, uh, isn't a big argument in Australia, but we do have much more centrist politics. Is our centrist politics created by compulsory voting 
and the alternative vote? Or was Australia just generally more centrist than, than Britain in the first place? The thing that struck me when I was here in 2011 working on the alternative vote referendum was how on the left of politics and the right of politics, their view was they didn't want the AV. AV would force in the Blairite experiment of trying to appeal to the centre ground to reach a majority. And for the left and right of politics, first past the post worked very well because every so often an election would de deliver you power over the lit controls of government. The, the system would give you a clear majority government with only a minority of the vote. Um, I think one of the mistakes that's often made about looking at British election outcomes is to look at the national vote and compare it with um, the overall outcome. The key thing that occurs in Britain because of first-past-the-post is many seats are forced into two-party contests and third-party vote disappears. If you look at the Liberal Democrat vote, it's a much more regional vote. The Labour vote is increasingly regional and the Conservative vote is also increasingly regional. Um, and of course you've got the SNP and Plaid Cymru as well. That First past the post doesn't work well in that sort of system. You can make the same criticism of Canada, and Canada has also grappled about how to, how to get electoral reform. Proportional representation would force more attention to winning in the middle. Um, alternative vote is a weak method of doing that. Proportional representation is a stronger method of making make people <coughs> compare, uh, battle about the middle. Would this cause the party system as it's structured in, in Britain to start to break up? Would it force the different factions of the Conservative Party apart? Would it force factions of the Labour Party apart? Would it create more multi-party politics like Europe? That's hard to assess because New Zealand, which moved to a PR system, has in fact moved back towards being a two-party system again under proportional representation, which is not what you'd expect. But I've got to say that um, it is peculiar in Britain that um, uh, because of the way the electoral systems work, because of experiments with holding referendums, you know, holding a Brexit referendum is completely against the British constitutional history and is why there is so much problem over Brexit because the public were given the option, voted one way, but most politicians, the majority of politicians, think it was a mad decision to make. And so you've got this conflict that's going on there. It strikes me that without some form of electoral reform along the way, that this will continue to be a problem in British politics, that every time there's a conflict you get the emergence of third parties, but the third parties don't get represented in the parliament. And so I think there's, there's an argument for some form of reform, but the one point I would make, mm -hmm. I think there is a quaint British tradition which is in the way of every attempt to get any form <laughs> of reform in this country, whether it's greater turnout or whether it's changing the electoral system. Britain's the only country in the world that insists on knowing the result on election night. As long as you have this rule that you must start on the night and the parliament must meet the following week, you will never get reform. Nowhere else in the world does that. This is something that was invented in 1918 when all the elections were converted to be on a single day and they kept with the tradition of the parliament meeting the following week and that's where it came from. But nowhere else in the world does that. We get preliminary results on the night and it's settled over the following fortnight. But you will, you will not get things like absent voting, um, where you can vote away from your polling place. You can't have that under the current system. You can't have more complex form of counting under the current system. Is unless there's some reform in that area, then all these attempts to get reform will bog down on knowing the result on the night. <laughs> If I could just have one follow-up question. Yeah. Um, one of the arguments that at least I've heard for voting reform 
is that it could promote greater democratic engagement, greater kind of trust in politicians. Is that something that you've seen in Australia, for instance, after the Senate reforms in 2016? Do you think it's had that impact? Um, no, the Senate reforms, I, I suspect, I don't think people understood them. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a second chamber, it's a big ballot paper, nobody really understands it. But anyway, so it's, it's a mechanism process rather. I think the, the oddity in Australia is uh, because of compulsory voting, it's mostly compulsory voting which creates a difference between Australia and other countries that you can't just ignore a part of the electorate, you have to engage with it all. So I think I, I, it's very hard to get it, compulsory voting introduced in other countries. It's been in, assist, in existence in Australia for 100 years. It is easier to vote in Australia than not vote because if you don't vote, you get a fine notice and you've got to fill it in and you've got to do all sorts of things. So it's very easy to vote in Australia. You can vote at any polling place. You can vote outside your district. You can vote before the day. It's very easy to vote. So there's a lot of engagement in that way. Um, I don't think people are necessarily more involved in the process of politics. I think more average people are involved where in Britain they may not vote at all. But in terms of activism of people being involved in politics, Australia is a very passive society. One of the arguments about political parties is one of the functions of political parties is to turn out the vote. The parties don't have to do that in Australia, and that's why Australia has one of the lowest levels of party membership anywhere in the Western world. Because they don't have to knock on doors and get people out to vote. So in that sense, there's less engagement. But I think in general, um, I, I would say that uh, getting people involved in politics I don't, th I don't think there's a... Uh, it's very hard to turn your lesson of Australian politics into other countries. Every country's got their own institutions <coughs> and every peculiar, everything is peculiarities. But as I said, the one peculiarity of Britain is the all standing on stage on the night and reading out the numbers. <laughs> Thank you. Mandy, I'm going to come to you next. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as the leader of a small party that's kind of new, new kids on the block, of course... I think it's pretty straightforward to predict my attitude. And, and when I was coming um, here today, I was thinking, ah, let me try and like flip this on its head. Um, first past the post. What do I like about first past the post? And I, it felt like I was asking myself, what do I like about <coughs> measles or having a hangover? <laughs> really, really difficult to come up with anything. And, and the arguments um, that are traditionally put forward in favor of first past the post, in my view, they, they just don't stack up. And they certainly don't stack up in 2019 in the situation we find ourselves in here in the UK. You know, public trust in politics, in politicians, in our political institutions is at rock bottom. You know, a recent Ipsos Mori poll said uh, only 14% of the public um, believe that politicians will tell the truth. It's, it's lower than ad execs. You know, ad executives score higher than politicians at the moment. And just out of, just, you know, uh, just for contrast, nurses score the absolute highest with 95%. Uh, I don't know if that's something to do with the fact that the, it's a uh, profession dominated by women. Who knows? But um, in any case, so here we are in a situation where public trust is on the floor. Um, it isn't just about the kind of debacle of how Brexit's been handled, whatever your views are on Brexit. I think it tracks back. It tracks back to um, 10 years ago, the expenses scandal. It tracks back, you could argue, to um, people feeling that they weren't listened to when they tried to protest the Iraq war. So there's all of this history that has kind of accumulated, and we're in a situation where uh, people don't feel represented. People talk now, and I don't remember this when I was much younger, about feeling politically homeless. You know, we have the situation that's already been alluded to where it's only a tiny fraction of seats that are actual, real, genuine contests. Where I live in Lewisham East, it's bright scarlet red. 
the whole entire council is a Labour council, all the MPs in, in the borough, three constituencies are, are Labour, and so you have this, this, this vibe of where, yeah, there's a general election going on, but it's, 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 it's more kind of window dressing rather than um, a situation where people's views, people's feelings, people's fears, people's concerns, people's priorities are actually being addressed and heard by the system in question. And you also have this kind of really um, unfortunate mismatch in different parts of the country. You know, for the, for the SNP to get one seat in 2017, they only needed 28,000 votes. For the Green Party to get one seat, you know, in the election, they, I mean, they, tallied, they tallied half a million votes, you know, and that returned them one seat. So what we have is a situation where a lot of people believe passionately in, in some of the most pressing issues of our time that perhaps a party like the Green Party stands up for and represents, yet there's no way for them to really kind of express and communicate that. No wonder people feel detached and disillusioned. Um, the other thing that people say about first-past-the-post is, oh, strong and stable governments and strong oppositions. <laughs> Hello, when was the last time we had one of those? That's not part and parcel of, of the reality we find ourselves in, so that's debunked. Um, another kind of, I think, thing to, to challenge about people who you know, wave the flag for first past the post is that idea of, yeah, but if you have a proportional system, you know, the extremes will get representation and we don't want that. You know what? I think that is in some ways a lot healthier. You know, I, um, I worked for many years for the Mayor of London and City Hall. Some of you may remember in 2008, the BNP won a seat on the London Assembly. That's basically the Parliament for London. They won a seat. That guy, Richard Barnbrook, was a complete imbecile. You know, they say sunlight is the best disinfectant. Well, actually, he exposed himself, he exposed his party, exposed what he stood for, for what it was. And there was a debate, there was a discussion. His views were um, challenged by his counterparts who had also been elected. What we have in the system is a situation now where, in my view, the most influential political force in, in the last 20 years has, has been UKIP. They've changed the destiny of this country because the system created a scenario where their campaigning, the stances they took on the issues they choose, chose to zoom in on, actually caused the other parties to contort themselves, to look like them, so as not to hemorrhage votes where they feared they might do so. And look now, we find ourselves in a situation where we're more polarized than anybody can remember in living memory. Who is being served by that? I can't think who's being served by that. A party like ours is in a situation where we have to use kind of guerrilla tactics to um, uh, amplify issues that we know a lot of people care about because the system doesn't uh, create platforms or spaces for that to work for new parties. You know, Change UK, how long did they last? They last six months and they had huge amounts of money behind them, huge amounts of resource. And I'm not saying it's a sad thing that they're uh, really kind of dwindled and, 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 and are about to fizzle out. But the point is there isn't space for the challenge that's required and for people, the complexities and nuances of people's lives to be properly represented and heard. Thank you. John, I'm going to bring you in now. Yeah, um, I'm in favour of the current system, first past the post, because the most important governments of the last 120 years, 1906, 1945, 1979, uh, 1997, different parties, different leaders, they were able to make decisive changes to the United Kingdom because they had substantial majorities. The minute you move towards a proportional system, you end the chance for decisive change. 
And without the change of 45 or 79 or 97, our country would be a much worse country. That's the first thing. Um, sec secondly, for me the most important thing in politics, in electoral politics, is so there, there, are two, there are broadly, we can see it in this election, there, there's two main campaigns. One campaign uh, is steady as she goes, get the job done, finish, you know, we started, let's finish. The second one is time for a change. But there's a third one which is really important and proportional representation prevents this, and that is kick the rascals out. The problem with PR is you can't get a party out of government. Uh, I'm not saying all of Italy's problems are having a Christian Democratic government from the 1945 uh, right up until Totopoli, certainly it contributed to the problems of Italy uh, and the electoral system did too. But I think kicking the ability, the negative ability of democracy is important to chuck somebody out. I do believe, uh, I'm not, I don't fetishize the constituency, uh, individual constituency link. I do think if you have a constituency, it should have one member. I think multi-member constituencies are, they, they destroy the point of a constituency member. A constituency member gives direct services to the people of that place. They represent that place, they're for that place, they give individual services to, to constituents, but also to business interests there, to other social interests. And we know how important placemaking is. All of politics, a lot of people talk about placemaking now. To, ab to abolish that link between one place and one representative is a really, I think it would be a really uh, retrogressive state. I don't think the Parliament has been hampered in dealing with the Brexit impasse by first past the post. I think the last Parliament we had was incredibly mature in, in being able to represent the breadth of the interests of the country in the discussions uh, around Brexit. Um, and the fact that we have an impasse is not because of the first past the post electoral system. It's because in Britain we are fundamentally divided about what we think the best thing for our future is, which is why the vote was 52-48. Uh, I voted to remain, yet when I say to my remain voting friends, it might not be as bad as you think, they think I am crazy. Because it's become an item of faith that leaving, if you're a remainer, leaving is bad, and if you're a leaver, the remaining would be bad. So I think the impasse is there, in the, it's in the politics, which is really my next point, which is, the problem in Britain is within the political parties. The one reform we need is to stop political parties allowing their members to choose their leaders. That was the moment this thing went wrong. The peer group, the parliamentary party, should choose the leader because they know whether that person is up to the job they're being selected for, which is leader of a parliamentary party. They've seen the person uh, up close. The reason why the Labour Party has hmm a leader who is not a Labour Party person in any dimension alien to our history is because some members of the, of the Parliamentary Labour Party believed that selecting somebody to nominate them for the position of leader of the Labour Party could be done as kind of like a joke. You could nominate somebody who you had no intention of voting for. That, that should never have happened. Uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party should have chosen the leader and there would now be a very different contest if only the Parliamentary Tory party and the parliamentary Labour Party had chosen their leaders. We wouldn't have parties driven by their extreme wings, we'd have parties uh, because what we find out from the Labour Party and the Tory Party is Tory Party, tiny membership, Labour Party, large membership, 
both those memberships are equally eccentric to their voters. Um, they, are, they are at odds with, their, with the actual the voters. So the people who are politically homeless uh, are, the, are people like myself. Uh, people, most, most people in the country actually want a centrist, a centrist government of some sort. And the, I think you defeated your argument a bit when you talked about um, how UKIP uh, were the most influential party of the last period. They've managed to shape politics without being in Parliament. Politics doesn't only happen in Parliament. Um, the, the, you know, Greta Thunberg has had a big impact from being a, a sole Swedish schoolgirl sitting uh, outside on strike to a movement which, has, which is shaping the manifestos of all the political parties. So the notion that politics is only in Parliament, I think for me, ultimately, and for the current system, because it gives you the decisive breaks. It's not the, the one that, that think the argument that Anthony was making that you're willing to lose because you get control. It's actually, it's, the, it's that if you have a leader and a program, as in 1906, 45, 79, or 97, you can do the really important things that are crying out to be done in your country. And each of those governments, those 6, 45, uh, 79, and 97, took the biggest problems of their moment and dealt with them, and that would stop being possible uh, in the, uh, some kind of PR system. Thank you, John. I want to take that point and come back to the rest of the panel. So, John, I think you're arguing that essentially radical change is only possible under first past the post. Darren, what's your response to that? Well, I think John sets out some values of the of, of the current system, and every voting system has its pluses and minuses. I think be, you know, you have to concede that point. But I, I don't. I don't think I agree that that only uh, the current system can lead to major reform because, uh, number one, the UK is not the only place where reforms take, happen. Uh, obviously, they happen in lots of other countries, and this is a very you know, unique uh, voting system here, a winner-takes-all, first-past-the-post. Most countries have moved, moved away from it. Obviously, um, countries like Australia and New Zealand have had reform programs as well. Uh, New Zealand's a quarter of a century now under, under PR. Um, I also think that some of those... Some of the strengths that you have to acknowledge about other systems, you have to think, well, is the price worth paying for that strength? So those were four, four elections that, that John mentioned where, where he liked the result of the election because of first past the post. But we have, we've had many more than four elections in that period. So the, the question for voters is, am I prepared to have lots of people unrepresented, votes stacking up in the kind of the wrong places, as it were, not contributing to the outcome uh, in order to get these occasional moments in history where strong governments can come in. And of course, if most people haven't voted for them, then they might not agree with that program of change anyway. So I think the better thing to do when you have a more consensual model is it might take you a little longer to get the reform through, but you've built more lasting grassroots support for it so that when there's a change of government, you don't get the baby going out with the bathwater. I think if there was a change of government here in a week and there's a radical program of one side, uh, that could you know, make a lot of changes in the country, it's entirely reliant on it being re-elected the following time uh, for those changes to stay. So if you're in favour of that, you'd be wanting to see how can you build up more parliamentary support for that. So I, I think that when you take it over the long run, uh, if you're looking to, for lasting change that engages more people, it's better to involve more parties, more players, more actors, and critically more voters, so you, so you get that long-term change. Thank you. Mandy, you want to come yeah, I think that... Um, just linking back to what I started by saying, um, having a situation where um, the system actually makes 
the idea of compromise almost a dirty word. The idea of collaboration, um, something that is seen in an unfavorable light, is just not where we are in 2019. Some of the issues we're trying to solve, you know, not just in this country, but globally, require what you've just outlined, this idea of building consensus, building support, mm -hmm. having people who, um, from the grassroots right up to the corridors of power in government, feel a kind of recognition and investment in, in the program that's being put forward. And I think, actually, a system that encouraged uh, people to, to collaborate, come together, accommodate one another is going to serve us better, more consistently in the long run than what we have now, which is just um, more dysfunction than anything else, more polarization than anything else. And I think the worst excesses of first past the post we're experiencing now and um, the fears we have and this thing about, you know, we need the results on election night, I mean, you know, Traditions change. We can change that. We can change our expectations around that. I think it would be really strange to let the tail wag the dog and say that's a reason not to go for electoral reform. Um, you know, but it, obviously it'll take people just having to uh, amend their expectations. So for me, um, I, I I don't feel persuaded that sticking with what we've got is going to serve the destiny of this country better than trying to find models that actually allow more cooperation, collaboration. Climate change is a massive complex issue. You need people to come together and work together. One last question for the panel before we go to the audience. We have obviously talked about electoral reform in the UK before. In fact, relatively recently, we had a referendum in 2011 and electoral reform was rejected, AV was rejected. If you think there's a groundswell of support for electoral reform, why did it fail in that referendum relatively decisively? Have things changed in the last eight well, years? I think it's fairly obvious that um, one of the reasons it was put up by the Labour Party before the 2010 election as part of an attempt to compromise with the Liberal Democrats, but it actually wasn't Liberal Democrat or Conservative um, policy that election. It was like it was childless. Nobody really supported mm -hmm. it. Even the Electoral Reform Society wasn't madly behind AV as a solution to the country's problems and it became, it, there wasn't anybody really campaigning for it um, and both, I remember it was John Reid and David Cameron doing this press conference. I remember sitting there thinking, here's the old Tories and the old left arguing why they don't want an electoral system <laughs> which might force them towards the middle. It was fascinating to watch. The other things which are really, really obvious is that What's not stressed about electoral systems is they should be simple and easy to understand. Yeah. And that was something that was really played on very strongly. I remember the No Case ran this ad explaining the count of an AV process, and it was quite hysterical. The thing about it, I always say, there's a difference between how you vote and how the votes are counted. And nobody should ex ever explain how to vote by explaining how the votes are counted. Agreed. Um, <laughs> P, electoral reform can have a big impact. Um, the introduction of proportional representation for local government had a big impact on the Labour Party in Scotland. It undermined them in places like Glasgow and Edinburgh um, and led other forces in, which was one of the reasons which undermined undermine the, the British party. But also, one should never discount the fact that sometimes PR is not a good result. If you look at Germany and Austria, two of the things that have led to the re-emergence of extremist parties has been the occasional forced grand coalition. And grand coalitions undermine both sides of politics. The, the left, the social democrats have been undermined in both countries by having to govern with conservatives from time to time. So, uh, look, sometimes we confuse how the electoral system 
interacts with how party politics works. Italy is a classic example. Italian politics is the problem, not their electoral system <laughs> most of the time. So um, I, can Britain be made better with some form of electoral form? Probably yes, but you've got to work on it and work out a way to do it. And I think one of the difficulties is both the traditional left and right don't like having to make compromises and deal with the middle. And you just, you know, that was Tony Blair's great invention was to appeal to the middle, produce huge landslides, and actually behaving like that is an anathema to many people in the Labour Party nowadays. Mm -hmm. And so it shows you how difficult it is mm -hmm. to actually get into this sort of debate. I think it's complicated, you know, people, um, it's, I don't think that I haven't come across that many people that are brilliant at communicating um, about, uh, about electoral systems, the merits, the, the disadvantages, the pros, the cons, and I think um, in a kind of referendum like that, it, to have a really meaningful national debate, national conversation, um, you need people that, and, and, you, and you need techniques that actually allow people to, to uh, allow it to make sense to people. And so I think, you know, if that was going to happen again, a lot of work would need to be done on all of the comms and how it's presented, how it's explained, and how people's fears, um, uh, which are just normal human fears about change or uncertainty, are handled and dealt with. And I just think that wasn't done very well at all um, at the time of that referendum. Thank you. I, John, did you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, why would you ever want to have a referendum? Um, I, genuinely, you should never in politics um, <coughs> offer the chance of a choice where you might get the wrong answer. And that's what we got in the vote on AV. Um, and there's definitely a tension between referendums and our, and, and our own parliamentary system. Um, my actual view is that... Is that it was an error by the Blair government because the intention of proportional representation was to reunite the traditional uh, separated, the, the liberal wings of politics, the Liberal Democrats uh, and the Labour Party, to really complete the work of David Owen and the Social Democrats. That would have been a historic moment because progressive, progressive forces in uh, the UK have been split since the 1920s, and as a consequence, um, Labour forms a government uh, it, when, when it, we do it well, once every three, once every three goes. Um, and you have to have a leader as exceptional uh, as Tony Blair to actually win. So it's really, really been difficult for the progressive side of politics to, to actually win. So reuniting, and that's actually, that political project should have been surfaced openly and dealt with openly, and the Labour Party should have merged with the Liberal Democrats. Then we wouldn't have needed a referendum on AV. We'd have had a completely different situation. Obviously, we wouldn't have Jeremy Corbyn as... Uh, uh, the Leave the Labour Party, which would be a minor but significant byproduct. Uh, but and the the pro the problem about the wings of politics is a genuine one across Europe. And so I, I disagree with Anthony um, about the Grand Coalition. The Groco in Germany is analogous in many ways to the uh, what Hungarians are doing to oppose Orbán which is that when you are faced with, with uh, populism on the right and on the left, it turns out the difference between Christian democracy and social democracy and liberal democracy is very small because the key part of being a Christian Democrat, a liberal Democrat or a social Democrat is you are actually a Democrat. So to fight populists and the populism of the left and the right, we are going to see in European politics, we're seeing it already, we see it in Sweden where the, where the traditional social democratic party have broken the left bloc and now govern with the Greens 
but also with conservative parties and centre parties. Because we are dealing with different political forces, different things will have to be done by those who wish to defend democracy. And I think when we talk about the systems of AVNA, actually, fundamentally, we're in a major fight about defending uh, the life of democracy. We have got significant and substantial interference in all European elections and in Britain, British elections uh, by the Russian Federation. A very weak uh, Russian President Putin is very strong and powerful in interfering with the politics across Europe. That's a real threat for all of us and fighting the information warfare and fighting to preserve democracy. Even the European Union, my last point, the European Union, a club that we, I want us to stay in, has been unable to defend itself as a club of democracies. It has allowed Poland to do what it's done. It has kept Hungary as a member of the European Union. It's allowed Romania to do what it's done. That is actually a violation of one of the central reasons why I both supported the European Union and our membership and the expansion uh, into the uh, formerly occupied communist territories. So there are some, there's a really big battle which isn't at all about our electoral system. It's about the fight to defend democracy. And it's a life, and so it's, it's a life fight and it's one that we should concern ourselves with. Can I just have a quick you. little referendum question? Very quickly, Very I want to get to the just audience. Just to say, I think that, that we, the, the, the two referendums that have been held UK-wide really show how difficult it can be to keep people focused through a campaign on the question on the ballot paper. And I, I yes. think that in the, in the referendum on AV in 2011, which does feel like a, an eon ago in terms of the <laughs> politics that has gone under the, under the bridge since then, uh, you only got a one-third turnout, and most of the campaign was about the politicians involved, Nick Clegg, uh, Labour people who didn't like Ed Miliband being elected, being able to openly campaign against him because he was in favour of AV. So even saying that now shows how irrelevant all those kind of fights were. So I think if we're going to have referendums, we need to make sure we have processes that allow for proper information, education, citizen yeah. engagement. And I think if we're going to move electoral systems, then maybe going down the model of a citizen's assembly for its design, followed by a trial period where we give it a go and then come back and say we've tried both of them, now what do you prefer? As opposed to these kind of faux wars that we have, phony wars really, on referendums. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Okay, now over to the audience. I'm going to take questions in threes. And if you could just tell us your name and, and where you're from. i start here. Theo Morgan, Labour campaign for electoral reform. So you probably know what my view is. Um, yeah, I'm a great supporter of uh, moving to a proportional system because the main argument for me is that I don't feel my vote counts. Uh, I live in a fair, like a safe-ish Labour area and I feel really deprived of choice. Uh, and by having one MP, well that might be a Labour MP because of a factionality that I disagree with or don't like, mm -hmm. or might like them but it, it's so dependent on, on, wh on where you are. It's interesting that in Lewisham East, uh, actually, I was looking, the Labour MP there uh, is undecided on PR, apparently, uh, because she thinks, she says, I'm happy, I don't mind, as long as it wouldn't let in any, B as it wouldn't let in any BMP MPs. And I, I feel, well, so you just don't want to listen to people with different views other than your own, uh, which is a massive flaw in our democracy. But the question I, I suppose I wanted to put is, Obviously, from my point of view and people in LCER, it's very disappointing that Labour has been so kind of sluggish on this issue. And uh, many MPs are for it, uh, many are ardently against, but the party is only do, uh, committing to a constitutional convention. Why are they so against it? Is it because they're actually quite authoritarian? Thank you. <laughs> 
Okay, got one here and then one at the back there. Thank you. Uh, Keith Sharp, Liberal Democrats and a member of the Electoral Reform Society. I should like to respond to a couple of points that were made. Your opening point, Emma, about behind the scenes horse trading. Mm -hmm. If you read Chris Mullins' view from the foothills, yeah. you will realize, and I'm sure you do from the expression on your face there, that the behind the scenes horse trading takes place within political parties. Mm -hmm. If you look at the coalition, any horse trading that took place was center stage and people could see what was going on. So that's an argument for consensual working across parties. Um, I have to comment, uh, know the result on the night. I was, I was once told that the UK couldn't possibly change its electoral system because it would destroy election night uh, with all those results coming through. <laughs> and that was put forward as a seri serious argument. Um, the, the point I wanted to make, though, to John is what, what, and Darren hinted at this, what you're saying is that it's worth putting up with these results where the voters are cheated because they don't get what they voted for because every 25 years or whatever, uh, a government comes in which does something. Um, the issue I have with that is that if it isn't democratically supported, then why are they uh, given this mandate to go ahead? And if you look at 1997, which I assume you're obviously you're quite close to, sure, Blair deserved to win that election, but a majority of 179 seats in Parliament was A, not democratic, probably wasn't even good for the Blair government because that stopped any kind of relationship between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Okay, thank you. Um, those are all very good That's points, but can I ask people to ask questions? Otherwise, we're not going to get through a couple of crowds. <laughs> 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 very good. So, so, so my, my question, and this is Charles Ethan, I'm from the Health Foundation. My question to the panel is, you know, your ability to reform it, you can't do everything that you'd want. You have to choose a reform. I thought Anthony made a really important point about the importance of people engaging, turnout, and voting, if uh, to also to gain um, the centre ground. And I, I want to ask the panel, if you could have one reform, why would you choose electoral, ref electoral system reform rather than giving the vote to 16 and 17 year olds? Because 16 to 17 year olds is something that actually I think a lot of people could get quite passionate about. They could understand and actively campaign for. The second thing is that I think there's quite a lot of evidence that if you vote once, then you get the bug and you vote for life and you're engaged. And at 16, 17, where people are still in education, still in those form formal structures, not moved away from home, it's a time to capture them and engage them. So you know, if you had to choose uh, 16 to 17s or PR. Thank you. OK, I'll yeah, take one more question. Yep, over here. That's a brilliant question. Yeah, yes. Uh, thank you. My name is Martin Lejeune and I work for CT Group, which is an organization that runs election campaigns. So I have a in close interest in this. Um, if we were to change our present system, and I have to say I'm completely uh, unconvinced by this, um, if we were to change our um, present system, it would be a revolutionary shift in British politics. I think that's absolutely clear. Whether you want it or you don't want it, it's a huge issue. I would like to ask the panel whether they think this is an issue which the people, the voters of Britain, are crying out for. If you really think that, then I'd be very, very surprised. If you agree, as I think we would all agree, that this is certainly not top of the tree for voters, why should we, in the bubble, force that change upon them? Brilliant, thank you. Okay, so we've got, why are, I think, some of Labour so against voting reform? 
Um, if you had to pick between mm -hmm. voting system reform and votes for 16, which would you pick? Um, and do voters want um, system reform enough? I can have a go. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lot of the electorate are really unhappy that their vote doesn't count. Now, if you want to kind of, um, uh, if, if you want to kind of project from that, that you know, with the right explanation, I said the comms has been awful every time this, this, this gets discussed. If you want to project from that, I think it is reasonable to suggest that actually people would prefer a system where um, their vote isn't a postcode lottery, depending on which constituency they live in. Um, do I have to, choosing between six, that was a really hard question. Choosing between <laughs> votes for 16, 17 year olds or PR. Um, I feel really torn by this. I definitely want both, but I think I'm gonna lean towards PR, but with political literacy, um, underpinning it, starting with the youngsters as early as we can get them, understanding, engaging, and appreciating the role and contribution um, their, uh, their vote, their participation will play in as you were talking about preserving democracy. Um, I think, we, how, how can we be satisfied with a system where so many people you know, in this election are just trying to figure out, um, you know, they're voting against something they dislike rather than for something they believe in. If we're talking about preserving democracy, if we're talking about the principles that underpinned why de democracy is so important, there's no way we can sit back and just allow that to, to be the status quo. Who wants to jump in next? Sure. Yeah. So I'm um, just maybe on Theo's point about Labour. I mean, I think you know, there's significant elements of Labour that are in favour of reform, and our task is to try and bolster that by quite quite some margin. But I think the, you know the prevailing view amongst people once they get to the top of a party is, I'm almost there. You know, I've almost made it. I can get a majority, and I can just do all these amazing things, and people will be so grateful I'll be re-elected. And so you, you sort of get sort of a bit of groupthink at the top of any party with leadership. They really believe in, in what they're doing, and I think that and uh, some of the more um, sort of the power structures of the Labour Party, there are elements that just think, well, we, we sit out elections that we lose, and then when we win, we get good access and good control, and that's the, that's the, that's the bargain that we've, we've come up with. So I think there's a lot of work to shift that way of thinking, and Jeremy uh, Corbyn has you know, always been a supporter of First Past the Post, but then someone like John McDonnell has always been in favour of PR. So you see there are, it's not all one-way traffic, but there's still a, a, lot more, a lot more to be done. And in terms of whether the public, um, are the CT Group, Crosby Texter, well, maybe we need to get uh, Crosby Texter on board to uh, publicise the need for electoral reform for us and uh, have a, get, sort of pan the ideological divide on the on the topic. But um, I mean, I think that uh, I, I think that really it's uh, to measure the cynicism that, that people are used to complaining about politics and nothing ever changes. So it's sort of baked in that of course they'll never change. They're an industry. That doing this job has really taught me why we don't let industries regulate themselves. We put independent regulators in charge because people are pretty hopeless at setting the rules for their own game. And that's what we've ended up with in, in politics. So I think that uh, you can see when so many people's votes don't count, if we could offer people a system where, where their votes did count, they did contribute in politics, was more consensual, then I think once people could compare the two, they'd look at the two and say, you know, we might have been used to one system, but we see this alternative working better. And, and, and in the, the case of New Zealand, after many years of using PR, there was a referendum to confirm whether they wanted to keep it or not, and it actually won by a bigger margin than the first time. So I, I have hope that uh, 
uh, the, the, the demonstration of it would, would be the proof in the pudding, but I concede the point that people aren't talking about it on the bus necessarily specifically, but the problems that lead people to care about it I think are the things that people are kind of negative about. And on the, um, on the question of the, uh, the votes at 16, I think I'd change the electoral system first and then once harmony and peace breaks out, they'd see, <laughs> they, they would see the virtue of, of including 16 and 17 year olds in the franchise. We strongly support that campaign, but your question was uh, if you could only choose one, so I want to be direct. Um, so I, I, don't, I disagree with Theo, I don't take lightly the idea of fascists being in the UK Parliament, and I can see why Lucian MP particularly cares about not having the BNP uh, in Parliament. The New Cross fire, the people who were killed in the New Cross fire, the killer of the black people, black young women, young women and young men who died in the New Cross fire, that killer's never been found. That's a major event for the community there. So the, so the notion that a local MP believes fascists shouldn't be, the inheritance of the National Front shouldn't be in Parliament, is not to be disdained. Um, in terms of horse trading, where was the horse training? I actually know the answer to this, but where is the horse training done in public about uh, trebling um, tuition fees to 9,000? Do you know, I've spoken to senior Liberal Democrats, senior Liberal Democrats about this, and I was told by one of the most senior advisors, um, it couldn't be stopped. And I said, why? And they said, oh, there have been too many meetings. <laughs> too many papers brought up by civil servants, too many calculations about how the system would work. The trebling of uh, tuition fees probably did more to undermine the young people's uh, faith in politics than almost any other event in the last 20 years. In terms of who's cheated by elections, it took four governments until finally inflation and union power was dealt with decisively and permanently in the United Kingdom. Who was cheated in the 1960s and 1970s when successive Labour and Tory governments were unable to deal with inflation, unable to do, deal with militant trade unionism. It was ordinary people. So you've got to balance out who's being cheated in the process. We required the decisive election of 1979 and 83 to change that landscape forever. Um, but it's unfortunate the Conservative government had to do that, but some government had to do it and Labour governments had, to, had their go and failed. Um, and I don't mind, I don't think, having decisive change every 25 years, because actually we probably actually only need reform every generation. The problem with our politics is a lot of time the tinkering by politicians who want to do something while they're in, while they're in government. And on, um, that's why I'm against revolutionary change. I think evolutionary change is probably more important. I have never come across in politics, and I've been in politics for a very long time, I've never come across an idea as stupid as Versus at 16. It is absolutely the most ridiculous idea that I have ever heard proposed. We, so, at the moment, you cannot buy fireworks if you're 16 in Britain. You cannot use a sunbed if you're 16 in Britain. You cannot buy alcohol if you're 16 in Britain. You cannot get a tattoo if you're 16 in Britain. But we propose that people who are 16 should choose the government of the country. We don't even want people at 16 to leave school. We want to have compulsory education to 18, and ideally at least half of those people to go on in full-time education. We want to interfere in those lives because we have a view about adulthood. Obviously, our view of adulthood is completely uh, stuffed up in all kinds of ways. But the notion that we resolve this by saying, you're old enough to choose the government, but you're not old enough for a tattoo. I mean, seriously? <laughs> 
Okay, well, I want to come to the audience one more time, so very quickly, Anthony, um, voting system reform or votes at 16? Uh, well, I'd go for voting system reform because I don't think votes at 16 is actually changing much apart from the people who get to the vote at 16. It, I find it interesting that 40 years ago, when lots more people left work, left yeah. school and started work at 16, the voting age was 21. Mm -hmm. And as more and more people are not in the workforce, they're <laughs> studying, we're talking about lowering the voting age. So um, it's, it's, it's a different argument than it was back in the 60s. Electoral reform, I think the, the interesting thing is to look at some of the voting patterns that have developed in the last couple of years in terms of who votes for who. I think one of the weaknesses of what's going on in Britain at the moment is the position of the Labour Party, which has gone back to being an old-fashioned Labour Party talking its socialist agenda in that sort of area, um, at a time when people who don't like Brexit and things like people who are well-educated and younger voters, they haven't got any alternative except to go and vote for the Labour Party. I think one of the weaknesses is that most countries in the Western world developed a party system in 1918 straight after the First World War, and it's rigidly still there. But actually, the way people are voting, why they're voting, is much more complex. There's an, I think there's arguments for the way that the parties, and, and I agree with John about the party leadership issue, although you've worked in Australia and you know how Australian parties <laughs> chop and change leaders very quickly. So well, let's, you know, well, let's not, not say that leaving it entirely in the hands of membership is the best thing in the world. Um, I, I think there's... Um, an argument for some form of reform. I think it's interesting that in looking at both Scotland and Wales when that system was introduced, I mean, the point of PR was to ensure the Labour Party didn't have total dominance of both systems. And it was quite a concession by the Labour Party at the time to accept that they couldn't have total control in that area. It's interesting that it requires somebody to give up power mm. to get that sort of reform. And at the moment, the way the system works, both the Conservatives and the Labour Party mm. think that they, under the current system, it works in their favour, is from time to time they get total control. And so therefore, neither of them will concede the point forwards reform. And the Blair government, which did concede that point, is now a dirty word in terms of the Labour Party, in terms of how yeah. you do reform. So I think that's the biggest difficulty. Okay, I'm going to come to the audience uh, one last time. So it's over here. Hi, Latika Burke from the Sydney Morning Herald. Anthony, nice to see you. My question is mainly for you. Do you see any value in turnout if Britain held its elections on the weekend? Because one of the really uh, odd things I've seen them gravitate to is our democracy sausage. And it appears to me that that's a cultural thing we can only achieve through holding that on the weekend. Well, it's sort of, um, in Australia, you can vote at any polling place in a district. You can just get your name marked off the roll. There's no fixed precinct voting. You don't have to vote at a particular polling place. You can vote beforehand. You can vote absent. There's a whole variety of ways. Now, you have to do that if you've got compulsory voting, it must be said. Yeah. Um, but any attempt to, you know, the, the idea that, say, if you can't make your polling place in the day you're in the centre of Birmingham, why isn't there somewhere in the centre of Birmingham you can vote in any of the districts in Birmingham? Well, the reason you can't is because they can't get the ballot papers back to the returning officer. Now, there must be a way they can do it. There must be a way to do things like that. That's what just gets me. So, oh, no, we can't do that. Can't do that. And, yeah, just, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to Thursday night when all those people in the sand shoes are running into Sunderland with the ballot boxes and the police have got the sirens going. I mean, this is so important for democracy to be able to do that. Um, look, I think there's ways you could get the turnout. The, the difficulty with turnout, people say, oh, everyone's obsessed about turnout. The difficulty with turnout is what, if, if you start to get what happens in America where the turnout's mm -hmm. dropping down towards 
and the only people who turn up are the people who are obsessed about things. That's when democracy is bad. That's why you want to get higher turnout, mm -hmm. so that you're actually having to consider the people who've just got a view. They're not obsessed about it, but they've got a view. So I think anything that increases turnout is a good thing. Um, and it does strike me that any attempt to do that, or even any form of it, I mean, I've been working for 30 years. I've covered some like 70 alternative vote referendums in, in votes, elections in Australia. And when I came here in 2011, and everyone said, oh, you can't possibly do that. We can't count those votes. It's too difficult. And, and then so we can't cope with numbering the ballot papers. And then somebody said to the no advocates of that said, but Australians can do it. And we never heard that argument again. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's how easy it is. Yeah. <laughs> you can... Um, uh, look, I think there's some sensible forums in that area. In, in that, the other thing I'd point to, and this was the example from Scotland, is once you had PR in local government, it changed the way the party boroughs work. If you introduced PR into local government in, Scotland, in, in England, you would get Conservatives elected to councils in the North East. You would get Labour people elected to rural councils. And that's where you start to get some shift. I think mm -hmm. one of the biggest problems is you get these blocks of areas where the other party doesn't walk one into. And, and so I, if, if you're going to go for a reform, I would start with local government, and then it starts to make sense to people. But uh, the worst thing you can do is the Jack Straw report in, about in the late mm -hmm. 2000s, where he said... He looked at all the electoral reforms of the Blair government, Scotland, local government, London, and looked at it all and then said, but we can't make a decision about the House of Commons electoral reform until we resolve the House of Lords. I mean, that's admitting defeat if you tie any form of electoral reform to the House of Lords. So uh, I, I would start with local government. I'd start with trying to find ways to increase the turnout by having more adventurous ways of taking votes. I'm going to take one more question because we're running out of time. So he's got a really good one mm -hmm. to answer. <laughs> um, Jason Groves um, from Australian Liberals Abroad. Um, uh, I was just wondering what the panel thinks of, um, uh, of whether um, having uh, party members elect leaders of parties um, has, has helped politics and engaged it more by encouraging more members. Um, or has been bad because you've got party leaders who don't necessarily um, are as pop the popular with the parliamentary party. I've got to say that I think Jeremy Corbyn has done more damage to the campaigns around the world to have party members elect leaders. That's just what I'll say. <laughs> it's gone off the boil in a lot of countries since. I mean, you've kind of covered that, yeah. haven't you? Um, I'm against that. Quite thoroughly. Um, I... I, I can see a situation where um, it actually does yield something that um, hasn't been as damaging as um, Jeremy Corbyn's tenure um, seems to have been for the Labour Party. Um, I, do, I find it really hard to completely distance myself from having affection for the idea of the grassroots of, um, that, 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 we, that we keep talking about in this discussion, the grassroots of our electorate having a way to kind of influence um, leadership and therefore candidates for leadership having not just to swan around at Westminster and smooge with um, their own ilk, but actually present themselves as um, having something meaningful to offer to the people that they are there effectively to serve. So I, I wouldn't really want to rule it out just because you do have situations where um, uh, the, the, the result damages a, a party that um, has had 
you know, has given the party more to contend with, perhaps, than um, it, it would kind of like to contend with. But just linked to that, other little reforms, you know, we in the Women's Equality Party, one of the things that makes us different is we encourage political polyamory, um, which means, yeah, it's great, I love it. Um, it means you can be a member of our party and a member of any other party you like, like it's not a problem. We're not possessive about our members, we don't demand monogamy from them. And, and that is all about trying to acknowledge the fact that people's um, needs, expectations, demands of, of politics are a little bit more complex than the narrow system that's, that's, that currently defines how polit politics operates um, in this country and has done for the last you know, couple of hundred years. Thank you. I think the, the positive, if you think of what the positives might be, so the, the positives are that we are often saying, how do we get more people involved in politics? Yeah. And if you say, well, you know, you've got a chance to choose who the leader might be and that leader might become either the Prime Minister or the leader of a party in government, uh, then that, that, that has a positive element to it. Another positive element might be that often when a party is in government, members of that party feel it drifts away from the true philosophy of that party, so there's a good internal dimension or dynamic there to keep people connected to it. So I, I, there are probably positives. I think on the, on, the, on the flip side, even with the enormous surge in the Labour Party membership, you know, less than... 1% of people in the UK belong to a political party. Yeah. You know, being a political party activist is still a really weird thing to do. Um, and I think that part of the problem can be if, if party members believe they are the voice of, quote, the people, when actually 99% of people don't join parties. I know you could say, well, you know, they're self-selecting and anyone can join, so, the, so the, the door is open. But we need to be realistic that most people won't join political parties. And with respect to, say, on the other side with the Conservative Party, over the summer, in a country of 67 million people, uh, less than 100, 000, fewer than 100,000 Conservative Party members chose the person who became the Prime Minister. Now, okay, we're having an election, but that wasn't going to be happening at the time. So I think we, we've given a lot of power away to a small number of people, which is fine if they recognise they're a small number and behave in that way, but I think if people start to say, we are the public, and the leaders are trying to address that internal audience all the time, then the 99% of us who don't join political parties are left out. And of course, we have a terrible voting system that doesn't represent our views anyway, which is just a kind of a link to the point of the night. Thank you. John. Dick I don't see any benefit to either the Tory party or the Labour party by extending um, the franchise to, 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 to the membership. It doesn't make... Um, the more representative of their voters as a whole. I don't think uh, the people who voted for Boris Johnson, the reasons they voted for Boris Johnson were representative of conservative voters. And I don't think that uh, Jeremy Corbyn or the people who support him and voted for him are representative of Labour voters. And I think that contributes to uh, that sense that people have of being, being politically homeless. And I think that the changes, changes in, in, in those kinds of organizations, in a sense, I fundamentally, I suppose, feel that a lot of the issues that we have to do are to do with culture and a mm. sense of agency. And I don't think that either a political culture or a genuine sense of agency over one's own life are given to people by the kinds of from technocratic reforms that we're talking about at the moment. Our, our part of the problem of our politics is that people feel detached from decisions around their place, around their community, around their families, around the services that they use, around the jobs that they do, the jobs that they want, uh, the prosperity they want for themselves uh, and their area. And that 
the difficulty we have in all, we've had in all this discussion is trying to, to stretch the, this system reform that we want, the technical, technocratic reform we want, uh, stretch it back to demonstrate that it could restore a sense of trust or a sense of faith or a sense of something else. Maybe we should be thinking much, much harder about what it is that people lack. And as, as I said in the beginning of what I said, I believe that the, the most liberating thing for people and an energizing thing is a sense of agency over the things that matter to them and will matter to them in their futures. And I think one of the uh, biggest frustrations with politics is if you go around and talk to, uh, you talk to people, you knock, knock on the door and ask people, are they going to vote for your party? They'll give you a quick answer and move on, and you can move on. If you ask them what they care about, mm -hmm. what matters to them, what could improve the area they live in, you're probably there for half an hour, but you actually might have a thoughtful, thought-provoking conversation. And it will be quite modest changes, which are ones which actually individuals could sort for themselves. And I think one of the problems of us, people particularly myself, and professional, people in professional politics and politics professionally is, you kind of think that politics is the answer for everything. And for most people, the answer lies with themselves first, with their friends and family second, with their broader community and social groups third. And government is way, 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 way down the list uh, of things that can, can make things better and prove things for them. And a bit of humility for, for people who are professional politicians goes a long way, I think. Brilliant. Thank you, John. Okay, we're going to have to draw um, the discussion to a close there, but we can continue talking over drinks um, on the landing. Thank you to you all for coming along tonight, and thanks most importantly to our brilliant panel for making it such an enjoyable and lively discussion.